T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning and welcome to another edition of Face Connecticut on WTIC News Talk 1080, WTIC-FM and WTIC.com. It is Veterans Day weekend in Connecticut and we're pleased to be joined by Jerry Roberts, Executive Director of the New England Air Museum located on the grounds of Bradley International Airport in Windsor Locks. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. You recently celebrated your capital improvements, the completion of them. Tell us what's new at the museum. Sure. Uh, we were able to, um, in this in this uh, financial environment, raise $2 million uh, since I arrived three years ago at the museum and, uh, and did a lot of internal expansion without building new buildings. We built mezzanines, so now you can take elevators up and have lofty perspectives of the aircraft. We added... LED lighting, which they say is going to be good for 27 years, and as long as it's good for 10, I'm happy. Um, we Full air conditioning, which we never had in the main hangars before. We had them in our classrooms and, and, and gift shop and so forth, but now we're air conditioned. And um, new exhibit signage, new branding on the front of the museum, so it's, it's a, a lot better visitor experience now. You've also reconfigured the vast collection of military and commercial sure. aircraft you have there, right? Right. We have really some unique airplanes, and a lot of them very unique to Connecticut. And so we were sort of reconfiguring to make the, that story more clear to people. What are some of your favorite pieces you have on display? Sure. I would say uh, all the way from the oldest American aviation artifact, which is the balloon basket flown by Professor Silas Brooks over Hartford in the 1850s. And he was the prototype for the Wizard of Oz. So we have his balloon basket. Uh, we have a four-engine flying boat, a big Sikorsky airliner that was built uh, just before the war that flew between New York and Ireland. And this is before there were big airports in the world. Planes would have to land in harbors. So this is the last of the great uh, transatlantic flying boats, and we have that. Uh, we have some great spacesuits, and most people don't know that the life support systems for all of our lunar uh, space suits and our space shuttle EVA suits were made right here in Connecticut. How have you been able to draw on Connecticut's rich aviation history to enhance the story you tell at the museum? A, a lot of folks, myself included when I used to live in Manhattan, think of Connecticut as this quaint colonial state. And we'd all come to Mystic Seaport and villages like Essex. And, and it is. It all, it's all of that. But Connecticut is also one of the leading parts of our country in aerospace history, from, from early ballooning to to really the perfection of the aircraft engine by Pratt & Whitney, to the invention and perfection of the modern helicopter by Igor Sikorsky, uh, innovations by Charles Kaman. Um, so what we've been able to do is get people into our first hall and say, what is a, a moonwalking spacesuit, a World War II fighter, a supersonic jet engine, um, you know, all have in common. They were all designed and built here in Connecticut with Yankee ingenuity. A lot of the aircraft you have on display at the museum have been painstakingly restored. Can you talk a little about that process? Sure. First of all, we are so lucky to have a world-class restoration facility and, more importantly, world-class restoration team. 
And these are folks that are retired from Pratt & Whitney, from Command, from Sikorsky. A lot of them are retired uh, pilots, but also just regular folks who, who you know, engineers who, who wanted to do something interesting. And so we can take aircraft from very, very early planes to, to very modern planes, and our guys can bend metal. They can uh, paint and fix engines, and, and, and we've, we can rival anybody in our capability we just completed a major restoration of a DC-3, um, which represents the very first commercial flight to land at Bradley in 1947. And it's probably the most accurately restored DC-3 in the world. Uh, and, and we just, we're, we're very lucky that we have the resources to do that, and mostly through volunteers and dedication. And this can take years on a single well, aircraft. We have, uh, we've just finished a project that, that lasted 22 years, in fact, the lead, uh, we have crew chiefs for every aircraft, and the lead crew chief, I believe, is 94 years old. And this was the original Goodyear blimp, you know, that used to advertise. It was built during World War II. We built a number of these to escort convoys along the coast, and they could see German submarines from up in these big blimps. And this one was then, after the war, turned into the first advertising blimp. It was then abandoned in a field and sort of gutted and, and left to rot, and, and we managed to get it. And after 22 years, it is in incredibly, it's, it's perfectly restored, uh, and people can come and see that at the museum. How does one display that and uh, convey the enormity of a Goodyear blimp inside a building? Well, it's a very good question because it's something we, we, it's a challenge. So we have the balloon car, and the balloon car is the, is the, the big thing that's underneath it that would have a crew of 10, had beds, bath, I mean, everything they needed, kitchen. So the actual balloon is longer than the, the, the blimp is longer than the hangar that this thing is in. So we have uh, the same team built an incredibly accurate model of the blimp and the car underneath it uh, with a panoramic painting of a convoy down at sea below. And that's displayed right next to the balloon car. And the car is large. We've designed um, uh, platforms that people can get up and look inside of it. Uh, we are actually going to put a crew inside of this, um, not volunteers, it's going to be mannequins, uh, so people can see what it's like to have 10, 10 people you know, living inside of this balloon over, over convoys in the Atlantic. How do you go about acquiring artifacts? Do people come to you or do you seek them out or is it a combination of the two? It, it's a combination. Generally speaking, um, all museums when they begin are desperate for anything and they take anything anyone will give them. And then as museums mature, they realize they have too much stuff. And, and, then, and then you really need to curate your collection. In other words, what do you want? What do you want to give to other museums? What story do you want to tell? Uh, but very rarely do we go out and, and seek out an aircraft. There's a few exceptions. Um, but again, we've been lucky as our organization started in 1959. And so people knew about us. And we, we are the lead the lead institution for preserving uh, Connecticut and New England's aerospace history. So, so when anybody has anything, they naturally come to us. In fact, we, we turn down stuff on a regular basis. Yes, I imagine that that must be a difficult conversation sometimes to have with people who are so excited about what right. they might have, and you know, sure. we just don't have the room for it. Well, everybody wants to bring in their, their grandfather's collection of books and uniforms and, and memorabilia, and and we have to be very selective, you know, because we have um, we have a lot of that stuff. And of course, most people think that a museum is going to take your stuff and put your family's name on it and fluorescent lights and put it on a big stage in the middle of a museum. 
and and again, our our job number one is to preserve this stuff and then interpret it. But um, yeah, we, we need to be selective. You recently completed the the capital improvement plan. What's right. next for the museum? Well, so the way I describe it to people, we've just spent virtually two years raising the money and then spending it to build a new picture frame. And now we're going to paint a new picture. So we built infrastructure. We built the lighting, the air conditioning, and most importantly, these amazing mezzanines, which give us you know several thousand square feet of exhibit space uh, up above with elevators and new staircases so you can look out over the collection. It gives us space to build new exhibits. And so what we're going to do now is all of our exhibits throughout the museum, which were off mostly built in the in the in the 90s and and the early 2000s and 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 revamp all of our exhibitry to make it more modern, uh, more accessible, make the stories more, more easily to comprehend, place the aircraft in a way that you're unfolding a story as you go. One of the things that we're going to create on the mezzanine is we a permanent rotating exhibit space. We have just acquired the world's largest collection of antique toy aircraft. And these are these are all from before World War One. These are priceless collection which we will be putting on display over the next year. Uh, we are also going to create the New England Aerospace Hall of Fame, uh, where people can come and learn about uh, pilots, astronauts, engineers, entrepreneurs, all of the great people from the New England states who have made tremendous contributions to aerospace history. So that'll be part of the museum as well. What sort of backlog of artifacts do you have that you would like to restore and put on display? And we have 56 acres of land uh, on, on the backside of the airport. We have six hangars. Three of them are open to the public. And three of them uh, are, are one, one is aircraft uh, restoration and two of the others are for storage. And then we still have airplanes that we have to leave outside because we don't have enough room in our hangars. We have about 107 aircraft. We only have room to display about 60 at any given time. So we certainly would like to get, uh, we have a line of aircraft waiting to be restored um, and then finding creative ways to fit more aircraft into the museum. In fact, this week we're going to start working with some people from the Smithsonian to engineer a way to hang several of our aircraft. So when you're up in the mezzanines, you can look out at these aircraft as if they're flying. When people talk about the New England Air Museum, it seems to always go back to the tornado in 1979 that that devastated the place. What a remarkable recovery since then! It is. It's it's the classic story of the phoenix rising from the ashes. You know, the organization started in 1959 as a group of uh, mostly Pratt and Whitney engineers that were retired and and uh, come, came back from World War II and and were interested in preserving Connecticut's aviation history, collecting great stories of people, researching different folks. And, and then people started giving them airplanes. And once they started getting airplanes, they had to have a place to put them. The airport gave us, uh, lent us, the, the original World War II hangar on Bradley, and that's a story unto itself. And then a field where, where we started filling up with, with some pretty large aircraft. And so by the, by the late 1960s, we had a pretty significant uh, both indoor and outdoor museum. And then in 79, the tornado came through, uh, tore a swath through uh, the outdoor collection and just mangled the planes beyond recognition virtually. It took the roof off of the old World War II hangar, uh, destroyed several of the aircraft in there. And I think that was a rallying cry. A lot of people gathered around. A lot of retired folks uh, came and said, how can we help? And if you see the pictures of some of these airplanes mangled, and, and see them today, and they look like they just came off the assembly line. And that's because these 
folks put years into meticulously restoring them, which means finding parts from other air museums and other bone yards and, and actually bending metal and doing riveting. Uh, so it, it probably gave us a strength and resiliency that we might not have had otherwise. We, we've survived much more than most other museums. You are listening to Face Connecticut. We are talking to Jerry Roberts, Executive Director of the New England Air Museum, located on the grounds of Bradley International Airport in Windsor Locks. You talked about the brain power that these former engineers from Pratt and Command and other aerospace firms in Connecticut lent to the museum. But also, do, do these companies still lend technical support if, if you need it? Sure. We have great corporate partners um, that that uh, can go right down to a local bank all the way up to, of course, Pratt & Whitney, UTC, Command, um, Sikorsky. Uh, they support us financially because we're, we, we are not a government-supported museum, so we have to, we have to beg every penny that we, that we get. Uh, and so we've had great support. We also have a very robust STEM education program. We have world-class teachers. Uh, kids come from school groups, learn not just about history, they learn science, they learn how things fly. Um, and unlike learning in a classroom or unlike even learning on a computer, these kids are often sitting in the cockpit of an airplane. Or they're seeing these very early airplanes from 1910 that are made out of canvas and wood. And, and at our facility, they can see that right next to a supersonic jet fighter and, and understand the, the rapid progression that we made from the turn of the century to today. And the hope is that some of these kids who are educated, who come to the museum, will end up having a career in the aerospace industry. That's correct. And, and it's, you know, as we talk to our corporate partners, the, 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 the aerospace industry that supports us and works with us closely, um, is they're always saying how the pipeline for young people getting into aerospace is, is not as robust as it used to be. And so they encourage us to playing a role to inspire kids. It, you know, great if they want to be pilots, great if they want to be astronauts, but just as important that they're going to be mechanics, you know, aircraft mechanics or engineers or any number of things that support the aviation industry. So it's, it's great to see that happen. It's unique that you are located right on the grounds of an international airport. How have you leveraged that advantage in helping to promote the museum? Sure. Well, it's interesting. When I, when I arrived and when I was taking the job, and, and I've been in the museum business for a long time, you know, one of the things that someone warned me from, from another museum said, you know, that place is in the middle of nowhere. Well, of course, it's not really in the middle of nowhere. You know, we're, we're 15 miles north of Hartford, we're 15 miles south of Springfield, and we're right at New England's, you know, great international airport. So it's just a matter of letting the public know that, uh, that it's, you don't have to go down to Mystic Seaport to see an amazing portal into our, 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 our nation and our state's uh, history. We are right on the airport. You can watch airplanes land and take off, and it's still thrills me. Our staff eats lunch together every day and we can look out the window and see these planes taking off and hear them. And it still thrills me, you know, to think that there's another bunch of human beings up there heading for some adventure somewhere. And now from Bradley, they might be heading to LA. They might be heading to Montreal. Now they might be going to Edinburgh or, or Ireland or the Caribbean. It's, uh, it's, it's really a portal. And, and, you know, going back to the maritime traditions of the state, it used to be that our seaports, and I, I live right in between Essex and Deep River, uh, which, which were great little seaports in colonial times, and Mystic is another one that connected us to the world 
through the oceans. You know, people sitting in Essex could have tea with a cup made in China because, you know, vessels from Essex were trading with China. Well, now it's the airways, it's the airports that link us to the world. And Bradley is our link to the world. It is Veterans Day weekend. Certainly, you've had a number of volunteers over the years at the museum who have been veterans. And to see them reunited with perhaps aircraft they flew in a war, yes. that can be an emotional experience. It is. I'll tell you a couple of quick stories. First of all, a lot of our volunteers are veterans. A lot of our volunteers you know, were, were fighter pilots in Vietnam. Or one, of our, one of our volunteers was in a missile silo during the Cold War. He was the guy with the keys and the codes and the buttons ready to you know, launch the attack on Russia if we had to. We've got a fellow, Captain Purple. Uh, he's, uh, I believe he's 99 years old. In his 20s, he was, a, he was a commander of a squadron of B-17s bombing Berlin. And the guy still fits into his original uniform, and he still comes and tells his stories. We also have a B-29, which is the great, uh, the super fortress, the big, the, the, the same type of plane that, that dropped the atomic bomb, but also did a lot of other things. And that bomb wing still has its reunions at the museum. And, of course, they used to have, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of men come to these reunions. Now uh, we had uh, six original air crewmen still at the reunion. But they bring their, their wives. Some widows continue to show up. But now they're bringing their children, their grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren. So that legacy continues uh, to live on. And it's, it's pretty amazing to hear these guys tell stories in their 90s as if they're still 22 years old. Tell us about some of the events you have upcoming. I know you have uh, something on November 24th. The day after Thanksgiving, we, uh, you know, uh, Santa, I think, likes uh, Connecticut, and he likes the Air Museum, and so he tends to visit every now and then. And so Santa will be visiting on the 24th. So for kids, that's wonderful. For adults, what we do uh, on that one day a year is we open up our restoration facility, you know, our own sort of skunk works in the back where people can come and meet our restoration crews, see aircraft being restored. Um, so that's a, a really wonderful thing for them to see. Um, December 2nd, um, Santa is actually coming back again so kids can have breakfast with Santa. And uh, that's a very limited situation. And we're going to, he's going to do a test flight in. And the Coast Guard helicopter is going to bring him in so kids can visit him in the helicopter after breakfast. But that's very limited. So people have to book ahead and go to our website, which is uh, neem.org, uh, to, to secure one of those spots. And then December 26th through 29th is school vacation week, which is always great. You know, kids are out of school for a week. Moms are probably going, what the heck am I going to do with my kids this week? And we're open. We're here uh, to have lots of activities. Kids can come, um, you know, see our collections. Uh, we have uh, special uh, program people that teach them how to make paper airplanes and paper helicopters and actually launch them. So there's always plenty to do. Let's talk a little about Gustav Whitehead. <laughs> yep. <laughs> in school, I was taught that North Carolina was first in flight. In fact, it says that on their license plates. Though, in recent years, there has been some talk that maybe Connecticut was. Sure. So I will say that that um, uh, Gustav Whitehead was a real person. He was a German immigrant, lived uh, in Bridgeport. He, like many folks, dabbled uh, with aviation. He built a number of aircraft, um, and he was prolific in that and, and also designed his own engines, uh, very innovative. And there's, starting in the 1930s, 30s, I believe, there became there was a book written and then a series of books and a sort of a 
you know, a dedicated group of people grew up around the fact that maybe Whitehead flew, you know, before the Wright brothers. There's a claim, there was a newspaper article written that he flew uh, in 1901 uh, out of Bridgeport. Very interesting, uh, including his own firsthand account of the flight. The problem is this, is history, um, you know, is something to declare something really happened, you need some true facts. And there, there is not the definitive uh, proof, either technologically, aerodynamically, or historically, that he actually achieved these things. It's not to say that maybe he did achieve more than the record holds. But the fact of the matter is you can't say something is a fact unless it is a fact. You can say it's a belief. And so a lot of people believe and they've, they've lobbied their local um, you know, legislatures and they've gotten Connecticut uh, to, to you know, name uh, First in Flight Day for Gustav Whitehead instead of the Wright brothers. Well, that's history by legislation, not history by fact. And we embrace Gustav Whitehead's legacy. The sad thing is, is his true legacy as an innovator is probably permanently marred in this ongoing controversy. You don't have to displace the Wright brothers to celebrate Gustav Whitehead. And I think that's, uh, you know, in these days of um, facts are kind of looser than they used to be now, uh, the old fake news thing. So it's an interesting and complex story. Some people are very dedicated, and, and that's great. But all the aviation museums in this country and in England and, in fact, in Germany— you know, have signed a piece of paper saying that Gustav Whitehead deserves a place in history. But as of now, there is not definitive proof that he did what some people claim. And just because you pass a law doesn't mean it's the truth either. It's, again, history by legislation rather than history by research and facts. What are some of Connecticut's aerospace firsts that are not in dispute? We had people flying balloons way back in the, the 1850s. Um, one of my favorites is uh, Professor Silas Brooks. He flew over Hartford, I think, in 1854 for the first time. And we have his balloon basket, which is, again, the oldest American. You know, he was an interesting guy because he was a musician from Connecticut. Um, he was traveling around trying to make a living. He met P.T. Barnum. Uh, P.T. Barnum said, I don't need any more musicians in my, my circus, but I do need a druid band because Stonehenge had just become all the rage. And, uh, we, you know, we'd all heard of the Druids. We didn't know anything about them. And P.T. Barnum, and the ultimate showman, wanted the Druid band. So Silas Brooks created the Druid band. And at, at these shows that Silas Brooks uh, uh, took on the road, there was also a balloonist that always went up. And one day the balloonist was ill. And Silas Brooks took the balloon up himself and found out that being a balloonist was a lot more appealing than being a Druid. So he became, uh, he became Professor Brooks. So he's a great person. Charles Hamilton is the person officially created, uh, I mean, uh, the officially acknowledged as being the, the first to fly in Connecticut. He flew at the New Britain Fairgrounds in uh, 1910, and he flew in front of 50,000 people. And there was lots of photographs. Wow. There's no dispute about this. It was, so, so he was a young man who drank hard, smoked hard, flew hard, and was one of the first great uh Air showman, and uh, from Connecticut, and and uh, so he, he's a great story. Another woman named Ruth Law, just over the border in Massachusetts, she was a sort of the female equivalent of Charles Hamlet. She was, she had Ruth Law's Flying Circus, and she would travel around the country, going to um, to speedways. This is 1910, 
and she would challenge that she could fly her airplane and erase the cars on the ground, which sounds crazy now, but back then airplanes didn't fly as fast as cars drove. Lots of great people like that. And of course, you go all the way up to today. You, I mean, the you know, space age, Alan Shepard, you know, is a New Englander and, and lots of other great uh, New England astronauts and, and scientists and technicians. And we're still making, of course, aircraft engines, you know, right here in Connecticut. He is Jerry Roberts, the executive director of the New England Air Museum. More information available online at neam.org. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Face Connecticut. I'm Aaron Kupek. Enjoy the balance of your weekend. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t